Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. We're back again with another collection of stories that are perfect for a rainy day. So, let's settle in and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Children on my street used to go missing. I found them in the walls of my house. Written by Quincy Lee. The head in the wall was crusted and decayed, mummified in its plastic shroud. The withered face opened mouthed in a scream, or maybe the jaw loosened as the muscles decayed. The plastic is what's held in the smell, though I do vaguely remember sometimes an odor permeating, especially during steamy summers. I was always told the smell was garbage. Alongside the head, other parts sat stored in plastic bins. When I finally saw the corpse from the wall reassembled, it was hard to believe that anybody would do this to another human. Harder still to imagine it was my own father who had committed such horrific acts. Before I continue, a warning. If you're triggered by any graphic descriptions, do not read further. Mine is a harrowing account. I grew up in a house surrounded by bodies, the bodies of childhood playmates and acquaintances. When asked why he had done it, my father always gave the same answer. As I recount the story now, I picture him in that interview room, how he must have looked facing the police. Victor Chen was a small, nervous, almost delicate man. He must have been petrified his eyes swollen shut and his lip bleeding, his hands rubbing and rubbing, nails digging deeper into the flesh of his wrists and palms as they peppered him with the same questions over and over. Why? Why children? Why in the walls? Why? I had to. Tears running down his cheeks. This was all that he would say. I had to. Why, little kids, you sicko? I imagine the officer's sneer. Imagine how my father cowered as the man struck him. We know what you did to them. Why you wanted them. No, I never did anything to them. I just killed them. You just killed them. Yes. You expect me to believe. I had to. Piece of trash. If the interrogation went anything like my father said, that officer beat him within an inch of his life. Only after he was on the floor groaning and at the brink of unconsciousness did the second officer intervene, pulling back the violent one. They hustled my father back into his chair. The calmer officer spoke in measured tones. Now Mr. Chen, tell me what happened to Mary Louise. Kaylee Jensen, 
Kyle Sanderson, Terry Cho, Evie Connor. You obviously put a lot of thought into everything. Packing them into the walls takes a lot of material and preparation. You must have had a reason for choosing them. What was it? But he would not say. When I confronted him, it did not go much better at first. He wouldn't speak for ages. Just sat there with his head down and tears dripping from his eyes. Finally, his gaze lifted. I suppose you think I'm a monster, he whispered. Are you? I asked. He burst into sobs. Through his hands, his muffled, repeated line. I had to. My father's crimes were not motivated by any of the reasons commonly ascribed to serial killers. They were not sexual in nature, and while most of the victims were minors, they ranged in age from 8 to 18, and he also murdered his own brother. Regardless of who they were, all bodies received the same treatment. Dismemberment, plastic wrap, concealment in the walls. Some were childhood friends of mine, though none of them close. He chose carefully, it seems, meticulous with his murders as with his blueprints. He was an architect, a trade that served him well. And yet growing up, I never had the slightest inkling of what lay within our walls. Indeed, I could not have imagined it. My father was shy and soft-spoken in public, warm and kind in private. What I remember most about him is his laughter, the way his eyes would crinkle. He was devoted to the memory of my mother, who passed away when I was so little that I could not remember her. In later years, I often saw him with dark circles under his eyes, and his smile became rare. Our relationship was strained by my teenage rebelliousness, but one thing I was certain of growing up, he loved me more than anything or anyone in the world. Yet when I look back now, I can see that there were always hints of his darker tendencies. For example, when I was seven years old, he taught me to butcher a pig. Now to my mind, this is not something to expose to a small child. But there we were, a pig splayed out on the basement table, his eyes glassy and mouth gaping, blood dripping from its severed head onto his shoes. He explained that rather than buy meat in expensive packaging, we could save money by butchering and freezing the meat ourselves. Of course, I shrieked hysterically. He clicked his tongue chopping off its trotters and dropping them in a bucket as he reminded me how I loved bacon, and pretending the bacon just magically appeared in an aisle in the grocery store was a kind of dangerous magical thinking that allowed all sorts of atrocities. You can do anything evil, he declared, if you sanitize it in plastic. A chilling statement in retrospect. Then there was the time my uncle came to work for us. My father did not like Uncle Rudy. I have a better understanding of why now, but at the time, all I knew was that Uncle Rudy was perpetually borrowing money. At the urging of my grandparents, my father, who was never rich but made enough to live comfortably, hired Uncle Rudy to do some work on the exterior of the house. 
There were strict parameters my uncle had to follow. Some of these were sensible, such as to not consume alcohol. But other precautions struck me as harsh. For example, my uncle was only briefly allowed to come inside for bathroom breaks, and at all other times, even for lunch or water breaks, he had to remain outside in the sweltering sun. But as was often the case in those days, my father wasn't always present to enforce these rules. One day when I got into trouble at school, my father could not be reached. It was Uncle Rudy who picked up the phone and agreed to come and get me. At home, he gave me a Coke. My father only let me have soda occasionally, claiming that it was bad for my teeth, and told me the girls who bullied me were a bunch of idiots. I giggled, reveling in his comment and feeling immediate kinship with him. Thereafter, while my father was away at work, I would invite Uncle Rudy to sneak inside to watch TV with me. He was always smiling and chummy, and when he started drinking beer while I had a soda, it was our little secret. We were both breaking my father's rules. Then one day as we sat watching TV on the sofa, he squeezed me and told me what a special little girl I was. Didn't I know how special? His breath, a stink of beer, and his sweaty hairy arm draped over me. I didn't like his face so close but didn't know what to do or say, and he kept rubbing my back, his hands sliding under my cotton shirt, his fingers hot on my skin. He leaned his head close to mine, his lips against my ears, speaking softly like he was trying to make me feel better, only he made my inside squirm. That was when my father came home. Uncle Rudy withdrew immediately as the door opened, but my father must have suspected something because his eyes narrowed to slits. He sent Uncle Rudy outside to finish working, and right away sat me down to ask me what had happened. Oh, he was just asking me about school. For some reason, I felt compelled to protect my uncle. My father's eyes honed in on the beer. Was he drinking? Only a little. Sadie, love, I promise that you're not in any trouble. No, no trouble you hear. But it's very important that you tell me the truth. Did he? Was he sitting very close to you? Touching you? I couldn't meet my father's keen eyes. I nodded, biting my lip, feeling like I had betrayed Uncle Rudy. But also, I hadn't liked his closeness his beer-stinking breath. My father was always clean and smelling of cologne or aftershave, and not sweaty and breathy like Uncle Rudy, I explained. He was rubbing my back. Like this. My father rubbed my back. Under my shirt, I admitted. He went pale, but just as quickly his expression smoothed over. Well, sweetheart, we'll talk a little more later, okay? Thank you for telling me. You're a very bright girl, and the girls at school who've been bullying you are all stupid heads. I giggled. Yeah, they are. Big, dumb, stupid heads. The biggest and the dumbest. My father poked me, which made me squeal, and then told me to go up to my room, read some books, and that we would go and get ice cream later. 
I just need to have a quick word with Uncle Rudy about the yard. All right, go on then. I went upstairs smiling, but I knew that he was putting me on and so I snuck back downstairs to eavesdrop. As I neared the office door, I caught my uncle's booming protestation. What? Jesus Christ, I was comforting her, that's all. What do you think I was doing? God, bro. The screech of a chair against the floor. Through the gap in the door, I could see my father lunge, gripping my uncle by the shirt. My father was, as I'd mentioned, a slight man, especially compared to my bullish uncle. And yet whatever it was my father had hissed into his face, it made my uncle go pale with fear, recoiling as if my father were a spitting cobra. Freaking crazy, burst Uncle Rudy, breaking his grip and storming out. Both of them saw me, but Uncle Rudy just flared his nostrils and bouldered past. I stood awkwardly in the hall, trembling. The feral rage vanished from my father's face and he rushed over. Oh, Sadie, I'm so sorry. I should have known better. Your grandparents, they begged me to help him. I thought if I had rules. I'm so sorry, my darling. I didn't really understand at the time why he was so distraught. My uncle had done nothing but rub my back and tickle my ear with his whiskers and disgusting beer breath. I didn't know about the other things my uncle had done at my grandparents had hushed up, protecting their eldest son. And even though I had come out of the encounter unscathed, I think my father still felt the deepest regrets. Things became very strained between him and my grandparents after that. He stopped taking me to visit them. We were isolated, a family of two, another reason perhaps, that no one suspected what he hid in those walls for so much time. There was nobody in our lives except for us. If it's hard for you to reconcile this paternal figure with the bodies dismembered and wrapped in plastic, well imagine how hard it was for me when I finally figured out what he had been up to all these years. The first disappearance happened when I was in second grade. I had a sleepover just before my eighth birthday, celebrating early because my birthday fell on a school night, and my father was very strict about the importance of school. Four friends came over and we were slicing the cake when a little girl knocked on my door. Her name was Mary and she lived up the street. During summers when school was out and my friends were on vacation, there weren't many other kids on our block, so Mary and I were sort of stuck with each other as playmates. But when school started up again, I would usually shun her in favor of school friends until the next summer. She knocked on my door to invite me over, but seeing that I was having a sleepover, she got very excited. I didn't want her joining us, and I gave her some white lie about how we didn't have enough cake. I'm not sure how, just shy of 8 years old. I already had a facility for white lies. Or what this says about the example that my father set. Mary's face reddened at my rejection. And she was about to sulk away when my father told her of course she could join the party. And when she refused, he offered to at least get her a party gift bag. Mary looked at the toys that my school friends had gotten in their gift bags and temptation won over pride. She waited while he prepped the bag. 
He gave me a look, a look that he would give when I hadn't done my chores or did poorly on a test or otherwise had disappointed him. And then he brought the gift bag out to Mary. Certain that he would reprimand me later, I stuffed myself with cake. As if eating as much as possible, I was somehow proving my right to have everything my way. Later, my friends and I were in my room in a sea of beds laid out on the floor, with a tent for me and fairy lights strung up all around it. I was feeling in good spirits by then, so when my father came in to wish us good night, I asked him if Mary had liked her gift bag. Rather than the reproach that I was expecting, he actually flinched, mumbled good night, and served us all bedtime hot cocoa. I didn't finish mine because I had had so much cake. In retrospect, this is probably the reason I woke up. It was the scream that jolted me awake. I shot up gasping, eyes wide, goosebumps prickling my arms. Vaguely, I wondered if I had only been having a nightmare. Pushing the covers off, I set my feet on the floor. My friends were all sound asleep. Light shone under the bedroom door. Careful not to step on any of my cocooned friends, I tiptoed to the door and peeked out into the brightly lit hallway. Dad? Silence. I padded down the staircase. In the shadowed living room, remnants from our party lay scattered around the sofa. And that was unusual. My father was very tidy and never left a mess overnight. Light poured from the kitchen door and I went in, observing the mound of dishes stacked by the sink, cake crumbs and frosting crusting the plates. At the far end of the kitchen, the basement door was ajar, and from below, rustling, the crackle of plastic, the chest freezer opening and closing, then the tread of footsteps on the stairs. I stood frozen. A deer in the headlights as the door hinges creaked and my father emerged. He was dressed in what looked like baggy, throwaway clothes from Goodwill, with an apron tied around his waist, an apron soaked in red. And his face bore an expression that I had never seen before, a peculiar, manic gleam in his eye. Dad? He stopped in his tracks, voice hoarse. Sadie... I just looked at his bloody apron. He quickly removed it and bunched it into the sink. Sadie, what are you doing awake? It's three in the morning. Is that blood? His eyelids fluttered. And then he said, Go sit at the table. I sat. I heard the kitchen faucet turn on and the sounds of scrubbing. The flicker of the stove. A few moments later, my father came in with a cup of hot cocoa which he insisted I drink. I became drowsy even before I finished it, and all but collapsed in my chair, only vaguely aware as he lifted me and carried me upstairs. I remember feeling sick, partly from the drink but mostly from the smell. He smelled so strongly of blood. In the morning, I woke to an empty bedroom, my father told me my friends were all at school, but he hadn't wanted to disturb me. I was feeling groggy and unwell, so I believed him when he said that I had a fever. By afternoon, I was better, and the next day, I went to school as normal. 
You might wonder why I never suspected anything, but when I saw all my friends the next day, they all teased me for being gluttonous and eating too much cake, and they exclaimed about the fairy lights and gift bags. That was all. Everything seemed normal. Besides, it was not long after that incident, the very day after the party in fact, that my father showed me how to butcher a pig. And so the image of my father in a bloody apron became firmly associated with pork in our chest freezer. If I had any recollection of screams in the middle of the night, well, I assumed it was a pig. A few days later, my father did some renovations, tearing open the space under the stairs and patching it up over some leaky pipes. When a garbage smell permeated the walls, he told me that it was sewage, that it was a pipe problem, but that it would go away soon. And it did. And when I finally wondered again about Mary after she didn't turn up to play for weeks well, the story of the girl who went missing on our street seemed a tragic, cautionary tale. Sad but unrelated to our house. My father acted very sorry when he found out. He sent flowers to the family and always referred to her as that poor, sweet girl and wouldn't let me wander our neighborhood alone because of what had happened. Is it any wonder I was completely taken in? I had no idea. Until the day her mummified corpse was discovered in our house and the decade-old missing persons case finally solved. But why did my father butcher my playmate? dismember her and wrap her in plastic to putrefy behind the floral wallpaper. There are many theories. Some claim my father had a disassociative identity disorder, a classic split personality. The meek, sensitive father who was a good man, and his evil twin killing as a means of asserting control, breaking all the taboos that held meek Victor in submission a domineering hide to his cowering Jekyll. Or another theory. Victor Chen suffered some form of psychosis and was given to visual and auditory hallucinations. He heard voices dictating what he should do and believed that if he did not obey, terrible things would happen to his family. And so he succumbed to these violent delusions, though they were merely products of a damaged brain. Or the most popular theory, that he was just evil. That his mild-mannered persona was a front beneath which lurked a scheming Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer. This theory, by far the most popular, is the one that makes the least sense to me. Because you would not think such a predator would make an exception for his own daughter. And typically abusers target those closest to them and yet I never saw this side of him that people claim was his true self. Only the occasional mysterious glimmer of desperation, and the sense, especially throughout my teenage years, that some sort of shadow was devouring him from the inside. The next two disappearances happened in my tweens. The first was a girl from school who was supposed to come over for a project. She never showed. Police interviewed me and my father several times, but since I truthfully reported that I never saw her, I think the suspicion that might otherwise have settled on my father was deflected. The second was the first and only boy among his victims. 
Kyle Sanderson had been blowing spitballs and pulling my hair on the bus to school. When I complained about it to my father, he questioned me intently. The boy's name, where he lived, where he was picked up by the bus. He said that he would call the school. A few days later, Kyle was not on the bus. I assumed my father had somehow made arrangements to rearrange our bus pickups. But when I asked, my father admitted he had been too busy and hadn't contacted the district. He promised he would soon. But of course, Kyle never returned to the bus. We children were once again put under strict watch and ordered never to walk alone in the streets. Mary Lewis, Kaylee Jensen, and now Kyle Sanderson, somewhere in our quiet burb, lived a predator. Each time a disappearance happened, the garbage smell would return. Just a faint whiff that wouldn't let up, and my father would forbid me from having friends over making excuses that the pipes were bad or an animal had died in the attic, and soon enough it would fade. It wasn't until the most recent time when my father was finally caught that I saw his true, monstrous nature, because I was the one who caught him. I was 17 and excited for a weekend trip with my best friend, Mickey. We were planning to go swimming and have a bonfire party at Mickey's cousin's house. My overprotective father had never once allowed me to stay out past an 11pm curfew, so to go unchaperoned through the whole weekend felt like the most liberating thing in the world. Frankly, it was odd that he had agreed to it, but I figured all my rebellious sniping had finally worn him down. His manner was almost mechanical when he warned me against the use of alcohol and reminded me to text him when I arrived. As he was walking me to Mickey's car, he also warned me to be careful about boys at the party. Plenty of friends, he said, had dark secrets and couldn't be trusted, especially after a few drinks. Rolling my eyes and promising for the umpteenth time that I'd be safe, I left. But during the long drive, Mickey and I got into a heated argument. I don't remember what it was about now, just that I had called her silly and shallow, and she called me selfish and melodramatic. Before I knew it, I was on my way home, in a taxi, since I couldn't bear the shame of both bailing on the trip and having to be collected like an immature baby by my father. I cried all the way back, so I suppose, yes, I was being pretty melodramatic. It was well after midnight by the time that I finally entered the house, and I was greeted with the sound of banging. I stopped in the door and mouth agape. My father hadn't told me of any renovation plans, but the lights were on upstairs, the banging sounds coming from my bedroom. Dad? I called. Immediately the banging stopped, the rustle of plastic and hurried footsteps. My father came out, shutting the door to my bedroom just as I had made it to the top of the stairs. Sadie, he looked panicked. What are you doing here? Why are you in my room? All I wanted was to fling myself on my bed, scream into my pillow and cry about my spoiled trap. The last thing I needed was my father to be in one of his house rearranging moods, especially not in my room. Renovations? You weren't supposed to be back until Monday. Uh, Mickey was being annoying. 
I tried to push past him, but he blocked my way. No, there's asbestos. It's dangerous to breathe. You're not wearing a mask. Suddenly suspicious, I felt a flash of anger and sensed that he had violated my privacy by entering my room. And maybe, just maybe, the suspicion of some darker secret sparked in me. A spark of fear, uncertainty. Because why was my father lying about asbestos? What was he hiding in there? I grabbed the knob. No! His hands gripped my arms. Go back downstairs, take your bag, and leave. How, Dad? Leave. His grip was like talons. So tight it felt like that he might break the skin. Tears started into my eyes. His manner, the wild gleam in his eye, all of it set my heart hammering. Panic gave me a strength to break loose and shove him. He slammed hard against the wall. I grabbed the knob and rushed in. No, 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 don't. His warning dissolved into a wall, and I glimpsed him biting his fist to control sudden sobbing. I slammed the door and locked it behind me. Terrified, I had never seen him in such a state. And then I turned and saw what he was hiding. My eyes raked across my belongings, arranged in one corner of the room. They were all the items from my closet, I realized, carefully sorted and stacked. Far neater than the pile that I usually left. The closet door was open and the framing of a false wall lay partially constructed at the very back, shortening the walk-in space by about a foot. Shoved into this area were plastic bins and plastic bags, but my father had not finished stuffing them all back there. One of the bags, tightly wrapped and swathed in layers of plastic, lay on the floor at my feet, as if hastily dropped when he heard my call. I bent down to lift it, turning it in my hands and then, I gasped. The bag fell from my fingers. Hair? Was that a head of black hair? There was another bag nearby, a simple plastic shopping bag from Hot Topic. It contained a rumpled, girl's tee, torn jeans, jacket, none of them mine. Another bin contained a pair of Doc Martens, well worn. I looked down to the bag that I had dropped with the hair, pushed it with my toe. Through the thick plastic, I could just see wide eyes gaping out at me, the ghostly impression of a face. I screamed. I don't know how long I stood there screaming before my father's hands tried to pull me away. I broke free and ran, out of the house, up the street. I should have pounded on a neighbor's door, should have screamed the whole quiet little cul-de-sac alert, but I didn't. Oh God, oh God. I sobbed over and over, trying to come up with a plan, trying to conceive some explanation other than the obvious. Something that might account for the strange smells, the walls torn open and replaced, a hallway shortened here, a closet sealed there, the rotting garbage smell. Oh God, oh God, oh God. In the end, I went back, because as shocked and stupefied as I was even then, with the proof right in front of me, I never believed I was in any danger. It didn't even occur to me right then that he might hurt me. I walked right upstairs. The bedroom door was closed. From beyond, the whir of a drill, 
rustling, shuffling, more drilling. He must have heard my return, yet he continued his work. I sat down with my back against the door, picked up my phone from where I had dropped it in our struggle, and dialed a 911. Speaking very quietly, tears dribbling down my face, I related what I had seen to the dispatcher. When the police arrived, my father promptly surrendered. I went to stay with my grandparents while the house became a crime scene. Ultimately, seven bodies were found in the walls. Most of the minors, though, there were two adults. Hot Topic Girl and just had turned 18, as well as my Uncle Rudy. The fates of Mary Lewis, Kaylee Jensen, and Kyle Sanderson were at last known. While the community reeled, all eyes turned to me, wondering, how could I have lived in that house and not known? Had I been an accomplice, like father, like daughter? How could I have grown up surrounded by the bodies of my playmates, wrinkling my nose at the smell of their corpses, putrefying in the walls around me, and just not known? I cannot tell you anything beyond what I already have. I believe the lies my father told me. I have wrestled with myself every night since I found out. Over my complacency, my childish faith, my sheer stupidity, as I repeat to myself the same question everybody else has asked, over and over and over. How could I have not known? But there's another question, the more important one. Why? Why did he do it? My father wouldn't tell anything to investigators, to his own attorney, to these psychiatrists who evaluated him for trial. He neither confirmed nor denied his crimes. He wouldn't speak. He just sat in his cell and cried and the only phrase he uttered when pressed was, I had to. There was only one person that he finally consented to speak with, and so I was summoned. After a briefing with police and prosecutors, after assuring them of my cooperation and that I too wanted to know the truth, that I would do anything to try to understand, they arranged for me to visit with my father the first time that I saw him since the arrest. When I came into the small, spare room for an interview, I was shocked at the sight of him. Filthy and battered, his face a bloodied mess, one eye swollen close, and his arms raked with scratches that he seemed to have put there himself, dragging his nails through his skin. He was fidgeting when I entered, head down, unwilling to make eye contact. Finally, his head lifted just a little. He blinked, slowly wiped the tears from his eyes, and dropped his gaze again. I suppose you think I'm a monster, he whispered. Are you? I asked. He burst into sobs, but after they had passed and decomposed himself, after he had asked how I was doing and whether I was going to finish school and how my college applications were going, after I finally told him that none of that was why I was here. Finally, finally. He told me why. Contrary to rumor, I hadn't the slightest inkling about the true source of the garbage smell when I was growing up. I believed my father when he told me that it was just the pipes in the walls. You see, I had a very ordinary girlhood. 
playing with other children in our quiet little cul-de-sac in our sleepy neighborhood, shaded by oak and sycamore trees. There were whispers, of course, of a predator, and an undercurrent of fear. But like most children, I remained blissfully secure in my certainty that the adults in my life would protect me. Indeed, in all my wildest imaginings, I couldn't have conceived that behind my father's gentle smile was a man who could murder my playmates in cold blood, chop apart their bodies and stash them behind the walls. But there were signs. He kept an axe downstairs in the basement, always sharp, yet we had no chimney or fireplace or any wood to chop. Our home underwent frequent renovations to fix leaky pipes or add improvements, like false walls. Strangely, it was only after these adjustments that a rank rotting odor would permeate. When my father finally confessed, I learned that the murders began long before my first memories of the disappearances. It began before I was born, in fact. It was my mother who was afflicted. He never knew where the affliction came from. Just that after I was born, mere days after, in fact, she tried to strangle me. He had saved me just in time and she was hospitalized for postpartum psychosis. My father bottle-fed me and my sole caretaker during my mother's intensive treatment. She came back restored, and their lives returned to the normal joy of newlyweds with a cherished infant. Until the evening, he found her bleeding out in the bathtub and me, unresponsive, drowned beside her. Frantic, he scooped me out and rushed to revive me, wept when I finally coughed and drew breath, screamed at my mother while desperately trying to bind her wrist, but she grabbed a hold of him and said sobbing, I tried, I tried, all I wanted was an ordinary normal life. And then she whispered something to him that, in the moment, he assumed must have been a sign of her madness. She bled out before he could save her. What did she say? I asked, sitting across from him in the cramped interview room where he confessed to me. That she was sorry, but it wouldn't let her die without. His next words were mumbled so quietly that I missed them. It, I echoed. It made me do all this. I had to hurt it. It wanted me to hurt you. Dad, what is it? You're saying you're possessed, that it's some kind of demon. He sighed, ran his fingers dark with blood from picking at the scabs on his arms, through his unwashed hair. It was strange to see him in such a filthy state. He was normally so well kept, almost a feat. A demon, yes, he said tiredly. So why didn't you try an exorcism? Call a priest or something. The whole demon excuse sounded like BS. I tried, he burst. Don't you think I tried? It started right after your mother died, these small tiny urges. Almost insignificant. I would see you sleeping so soundly there and I would think, what if I put the pillow over her? What if I squeezed her tiny little hand until it bled? What if instead of tickling those little toes, I just bit them off? Dad! I recoiled, disgusted. I didn't want these thoughts, he shouted. Fingers curled into claws that he raked across the back of his neck. I didn't want them. 
They came in and they got louder, more insistent. I couldn't tune them out. I don't know what it was or I thought it was just a sickness in me. I went to doctor, psychiatrist. I doped myself up. I tried priests, a prayer, and yes, I did an exorcism. It was strange to hear this coming from his mouth. I tried all of it, but it wouldn't stop. The only thing that made the voices still was, was what, I asked, as he got this faraway haunted look, and I knew that he was reliving something. Reliving what though? Killing children, taking apart their bodies, burying them in the walls. I shuddered, sickened. Was what, dad? Giving in. He said finally, eyelids fluttering closed. He dropped his head in his hands. Giving in, I repeated. So what? You just started following children. No, it, it was gradual. I, I started with animals. The pig, I said, color draining from my face as I remembered his first attempt to teach me butchery. At age seven. No, no long before that. I started with chickens, he sighed. I discovered that killing, any kind of killing, left me free for a while. But within a few months, the whispers would come back louder, and I would have to escalate, like, like upping a dosage. He rubbed his eyes. Finally, I understood the strange black moods that gripped your mother, brewing until she, she. Don't you blame her, I growled, clenching my fist. What happened to her was tragic. Don't you dare pretend that you're like her. Oh, Sadie, he shook his head. Of course I'm not like her. If I were, you would be just another family secret. Buried like your dead aunt or like what Uncle Rudy did to that girl. Conveniently forgotten so your grandparents could pretend to have perfect families. Your dead mother was a pretty picture on your dresser. Tragically passed from illness. They always said, but it wasn't like that when she was alive. She was funny, smart, charming, but also deeply, deeply difficult. Since you're asking for a confession, Sadie, the murders in our family didn't start with me. Everything began with her. My father met my mother at an event at the Chinese Culture Center where both their families were occasionally involved. Neither my father nor my mother were much interested in the goings-on, and the pair of them escaped together to spend the evening walking and chatting, lost in each other's company. They fell very quickly in love and conceived me out of wedlock, much to the chagrin of both their families. They married to appease the older generations, but by all accounts, they were happy. Happy, that is, except for the shadow that descended over my mother. One night, my father told me as she lay in bed beside him, her belly round and heavy with me. She asked him if he was superstitious. Did he believe in spirits, demons? What about the idea that twins could feel each other after death? No, he said. I don't believe in any of those things. Why are you asking? I bet, she said, with a strange and strained smile. You didn't know I had a twin sister. He didn't. In fact, he thought that she was joking at first. He only confirmed the existence of her twin later speaking with her grandmother, 
who admitted that the twin had drowned tragically at the age of 12 in the neighbor's swimming pool. The family was devastated. How she had drowned in relatively shallow water with a floating pool toy nearby, when by all accounts she was a skilled swimmer. It was a mystery. It was also strange that she had been found alone, given the twins were usually inseparable. As for my mother, to have her twin ripped away from her at such a young age was like losing half her soul. She burst into tears whenever her sister's name was spoken to her. Yet when she finally recovered, she blossomed like they had never seen. And then she met my father. Dad, really, I said. He never spoke much of my mother when I was growing up. And though I knew she had died young after a struggle with mental illness, this was the first that I had heard of a sibling. A twin. A twin you've never told me about. Who you're implying that she drowned. Watch your tongue, Sadie. I could have smacked him. As his brown knit, I added. Even if mom had a sister, why would you assume there's some deep dark secret there? You haven't told me anything that would imply it wasn't an accident. Mom probably wound up with postpartum psychosis because she had unprocessed grief from losing her twin. Not just hers. He said his voice suddenly devoid of inflection. What? I blinked. When he did not explain, I demanded. What do you mean? Who else has a... I paused, blood running cold. Family secrets. His dark eyes leveled with mine. Dad, I said, heart quickening. Dad, who else has a... Check your birth certificate. You're lying. I would have known. He would have told me. Someone would have told me. This all has to be some elaborate concoction, warping our family history to shift blame. She didn't have postpartum psychosis, he said. I caught her just in time to save you. Just you. You're lying. I don't know why I fought so hard to discredit this particular part of his account, especially because it could be so easily verified by a glance at my birth certificate, which I had at home. I suppose because it shattered the image, pre-children in the walls that I had had of our family. Like biting into a perfectly red and beautiful apple only to find that the inside is black and rotten. Everything I knew about my parents was a lie. Really, it was a carefully curated image. And while I had already given up on having a good father, I didn't want to lose the idea I held of my mother too. I couldn't actually remember her, of course. There were only photographs of a beautiful young woman with an angelic smile, always with a flower in her long, glossy hair. Growing up, I used to kiss her picture goodnight, entranced by the tale of a young woman dead of a tragic illness. I suppose I imagined that she would have been the perfect parent had she lived. My father who raised me with enough loving kindness to almost match my imaginary version of my mother never disillusioned me about her perfection. Until now. His lips pursed, head cocked at my denial, and then he said, Excuse me. Turning away, he slammed his fist so hard into the table that I heard the crack of his knuckles as he broke them. I gasped, recoiling as he hunched over his broken hand, 
with his teeth clenched at the pain, eyes tearing, saliva and blood bubbling at his mouth. And then he sat up, cradling the broken hand and said, It was telling me to smash your face in. Now then, uh, the children. Why did I start killing children? That's what you really want to know. I didn't. I didn't want to know. But the officers who were monitoring our discussion would be appalled if I abandoned the interview now, just as he was approaching the critical point. So I told him that I needed a bathroom break. I fled and leaned over the bathroom sink, splashing cold water on my face from the faucet. I closed my eyes and put down my head, pretending for a few minutes that I was anywhere but here, interviewing my axe-murderer father about secrets I wished that I had never unearthed. Finally, I forced myself to look in the mirror, into the face that had my mother's high cheekbones and my father's narrow eyes. The pair of them really had been a picture-perfect couple. What other rot would I expose if I dug deeper? Finally, I marched back out to the interview room to face the monster and my father. I nearly suffocated you when you were five years old, he said without preamble. What? I had no memory of this. You were asking me a question, just some innocent question. You had thousands of questions in those days. In sudden rage, it seized me and I just grabbed your face, cupped my hand over your nose and mouth like this. He mimed the action, his broken hand cradling the back of an invisible head and the other hand cupping over an imaginary mouth and nose. The voices, they were loud that day, deafening like, like church bells. They kept telling me to squeeze, so I held you while you flailed and turned purple until you went limp. His hand squeezed tighter. In spite of myself, I felt my heart pounding, felt myself counting the seconds. He kept squeezing, not looking at me, but at some distant memory. And then abruptly, he let go. I exhaled, not even realizing that I had been holding my breath until his eyes flickered up to me again. You woke up in just a couple of minutes. I, I don't remember any of this. Well, you were only five years old. He paused. And I comforted you right afterwards and told you that you had had a bad dream. You lied to me, I said, accusing. He gave me a look. Yes, sweetie, I lied to you, rather than explain to you that daddy was possessed and purposefully suffocated you. I glowered and crossed my arms. Yeah, sure, good call, I guess. Dad of the year. He actually laughed. Just a short, little laugh, but it was the first spark I had seen of the man I knew before he retreated into his shell again. I didn't trust myself with you after that, so I dropped you off with your grandparents. And then I tried to end myself. A noose, a gun, sleeping pills but it wouldn't let me go through with it. I finally understood what your mother went through. I went back to your grandparents and picked you up. Just like her, I was going to... to... His voice cracked. He had been numb telling me about the loss of my mother, but as he described his plans to end my life, emotion finally broke through. He put a hand over his mouth to hold in the sobs and said... Because of how I had choked you, 
I was expecting you to be afraid, ready to have to coax you, but... He shook his head. The moment I arrived, you just... You flew into my arms. You were so happy to see me. Daddy, daddy, you said. So, so excited to be coming home with me. Beaming and smiling. And I just... He blinked quickly. I knew then that I was going to, to fight it. For a little while, just you were enough to keep away the darkness. He was crying now. I reached across and he squeezed my hand, his fingers dirty and his nails crusted with blood. And then he let go, reached down and grabbed his shirt and pulled it up over his head. I gaped, shrinking back. He had always been so proper, always in a button-down and usually a tie. I had never seen him shirtless, not even at the beach. His entire torso from front and back was covered in crisscrossing scars. Some deep, some shallow, some very fresh, but most quite old. Hearing me suck in a breath, he pulled his shirt back on. I did try to fight it in all kinds of ways, but, he shrugged, it stopped working. And then, having finished the account of our family, he told me about how his own murders began. If you're here for all of the grisly specifics of each particular murder, which wall he tore open and which implements he used to take which bodies apart, you're in the wrong place. My goal isn't to titulate with a gruesome recounting, but to understand why. Why in the walls? Why specifically children? In any case, my father spared me the worst of the details. That part of his confession he saved for the police. But as to the matter of why, I must begin with Mary Lewis. Her murder was unplanned. The voices were particularly loud that day, he said of Mary. I really did mean to send her straight home. But she mentioned her mother was napping, how bored she was so she came over. I realized no one was likely to notice her missing just yet and um, he rubbed his face unable to look at me. I, 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 um, I strangled her, hid her in the bushes behind the house until you were asleep, and then I, I chopped her up and put her in the freezer, and that's when you caught me when I was, uh, cleaning. Did you black out? I interrupted, trying not to listen even as every detail burned into my mind. No, he admitted. No, no, it's, it's more like a light switch turns off. A part of me just dims, while the voices turn up. Sometimes it's hard to know what is me and what isn't. The fact I can't distinguish, it makes it worse. This explanation didn't inspire much comfort. Once the part of him that was himself had switched back on, and the voices dimmed down, he panicked. Her body couldn't remain forever in the freezer. Nor did he want to risk burying her in the yard and leaving freshly disturbed soil. But of course my father was an architect. He was very, very good with compartments and compartmentalizing. As soon as I was back at school, he cleared out the closet under the stairs, walling it in so that the space was a foot shorter on the interior. A difference so subtle that you couldn't even see it, with the usual boxes and bins stored under there. What he didn't mention but that I remember growing up is he had been fond of Mary. 
He kept drawings that she made for him, and a little jar with feathers and some pretty stones that she had collected. I believed it was genuine when he sent flowers and letters of condolences to the family. But at the same time as he appeared to mourn her, he stepped over her body every night going up and down the staircase, as did I unwittingly. Eventually, the horror faded, he said. I realized I wasn't going to get caught and I could almost pretend it was someone else who had done it. For the first time, the very first time in years I had, quiet. He closed his eyes and lifted his face toward the ceiling. The absolute perfection of that quiet, you have no idea, Sadie. How blessed that quiet was. I didn't speak. His eyelids fluttered open and he returned his gaze to me. Afterward, when the voices came back, I started to plan the murders whenever the voices got loud. The rest, I think, you can put together. I sat there perfectly still. Now that he had stopped talking, it hit me all at once. Horror at the nature of his crimes. Horror at the reason behind them. I couldn't process it all, not right then. There, in that room, and I finally, I said, I need to go, I... I need to go. Sadie, he called after me as I stood up. I looked back, sure that he was going to once again apologize, that he was going to tell me he loved me, that he was going to say that he had tried and he was so sorry and to beg for my forgiveness. But he didn't say any of that. He was smiling, and he said with the most terrifying expression of anticipation that I've ever seen, I was saving you for last. I gasped and fled. Despite his attorney's insistence on a mental health evaluation, my father was declared competent by the courts. He entered a guilty plea and seemed unsurprised, relieved even when he was issued a death sentence. His time on death row was mostly spent in isolation. I was permitted occasional visits, but during these brief breaks from his solitude, we conversed very little. He would ask me how I was doing, trying to make sure that I was keeping my grades up as I entered college, but then he would go quiet. The rest of the time would just be the two of us sitting in silence while he bowed his head, slumped against the table. On my last visit, my father asked me if I believed his account. I didn't know what to say. I wasn't in the habit of lying and he almost always saw through me anyway. I just looked at him sadly. Finally, I said, I don't know, Dad. Am I just a monster? Are you? I wondered. He sighed and whispered, I don't know either, but if it's genetic, you should probably go and get yourself regular visits with a psychiatrist, given the affliction of both myself and your mother. I'm already seeing someone. Did he think I wasn't after all this? He rubbed his eyes. He seemed very tired. Finally, he spoke. You know, Sadie, through everything your mother went through and now me, the doctors told me that demons can't be real. That if there were ghouls, demons, spirits, ghosts, there would be evidence. But murderers, abusers, delusional psychopaths, serial killers... These are all real and so, I must be one of these evil men, but, he sighed, 
It seems such hubris to think that if we haven't scientifically proven something, that means it isn't real. I mean, supposing there were things beyond our understanding. Things like I've told you. What do you think would happen when someone who's got what I've got told the world? No one would ever believe them. And do you know, Sadie, my love, that's the worst part. That's the worst part. He put his head in his hands. It always distressed him very much when I didn't believe him. Dad, I sighed. What is it you want? Redemption, forgiveness. It's not like I could give him those things. You still don't understand, he burst. You think this is about evil. This thing in me, it didn't want those children. Then why the heck did you kill them? Dad, if it didn't make you do it, then why? What do you, what does it want? The same thing, he sobbed, that I've wanted for years and years and years. As he spoke for the first time in my entire life, I felt a chill in his presence. A chill that started at my nape and trickled down my spine like ice water. Deep, gut-clenching, heart-racing fear. Every instinct screamed. I leaned back and that's what saved my life when he launched, howling. You! I fell over backwards, scrambling away while the guards rushed to restrain him. He writhed, screaming at me, spittle flecking his lips. Get back here! You're a terrible daughter! Get back here right now! He spewed invective, words that no man should say about his own daughter. In my last look at him, it almost appeared as if he was tearing himself apart. Blood running down his face from where his hands tried to restrain his mouth. His fingers jabbed into his eyes, blinding him so that he couldn't see me. So that when he shook the guards off, burly though they were, he groped sightlessly for me. I shrank against the wall as he just barely missed my foot. Blood streaming from his eyes like tears until the guards caught a hold of him again. And I fled. Victor Chen never completed his sentence. He was found beaten to a pulp and his throat slit. Probably the guards looked the other way and let it happen. To be honest, I think it was a mercy for him. His long ordeal was finally over. But I do think often about what he said at the end. If hauntings are confined only to the experiences of the haunted, how can we ever know? How can we tell the difference between a haunted man and a madman? I'm not sure you can. Certainly the courts and doctors couldn't. But whether it was real or not, I finally understand what he meant when he said it didn't want those children. I should have figured it out sooner simply based on what he had told me of my mother. First, she killed her twin sister, and then her own child, my twin, and very nearly me. All those she loved. As for why she never tried to kill my father well, I think it's because she did something much worse, cursing him with the most terrible fate of all. It was in her final words, the ones he mumbled so I couldn't make them out at first. Her last words to him were, I'm sorry, it wouldn't let me die without someone new. Which brings us to my father's turn as host. All the children he killed, the ages ranged from 8 to 18. The last one had recently celebrated her 18th birthday, just as I had been about to. 
They were nearly always, in fact, girls my own age. You see, this is what he meant when he said it didn't want them. It wants what you love. It wouldn't let him die. It wouldn't let him rest. But while he succumbed to its evil in every other sense, committing the most terrible of acts and becoming a quite literal monster, still, sometimes I think about the fact that in the end, he managed never to give it what it really wanted. That in his own warped way, he continued protecting me. Because every one of my father's victims was really just a stand-in. Like stabbing a doll instead of the real thing. Each murder just a substitute for me. I would like to think that he won. That he prevented it from getting what it wanted. Or passing on to anybody else. That even though he couldn't kill himself, it lost when his throat was slit. Eliminating both him and it from the world. But... A couple of weeks ago, I saw in the newspaper that a pastor from one of the local churches, a progressive-minded, good-hearted woman known for making prison visits and helping the most unfortunate in society, had been arrested for the abuse and murder of two elderly left in her care. When asked why she had committed such a crime, this woman who for decades had served the community with kindness and charity, who by all accounts loved her clients very dearly, covered her face and said, with apparent confusion, a phrase that gave me chills in its terrible, intimate familiarity. I had to. We can all turn into creeps when we don't get enough sleep. So, if you're tossing and turning at night, it might be time to buy a new mattress. The folks over at Ghostbed have been making mattresses for over 20 years and you can feel it when you lie down on one of their beds. They never skimp on quality using the best materials to support and cushion your body throughout the night. Plus, each Ghostbed is made with signature cooling technology that means you'll never wake up feeling suffocated by your mattress again. Trying a new ghost bed is easy with free shipping, a 101 night sleep trial, and an industry-leading warranty. Most orders ship within 24 hours so you'll get your new mattress fast. And Ghostbed has a team of sleep experts standing by to help you with any questions. For a limited time, you can use code MRCREEPS for 40% off site-wide. Head to ghostbed.com slash now to get started. I explored an abandoned settlement in northern Alaska. Something terrifying remained. Written by Doomed Geek My sister is two years younger than me. When we were growing up, she always had her head in a book or was writing something in one of her journals. She liked school and did well there, and she loved the library. It was her second favorite place in the world after home. I was the opposite. The only thing that I ever read was the back of a cereal pack, the TV guide, and the occasional comic book about mutants or zombies or other gross monsters. School was the most boring thing that had ever been invented, and the highlight of the day was when the bell went and I could get out of the place. And I loved being outside. 
I used to race with my friends through our neighborhood on our bikes or start a game of baseball on a patch of waste ground that would only end when it went dark. The woods just outside of town were another favorite haunt of mine. And in the summer, the river which ran along one edge of the woods was perfect for swimming. Or for playing water baseball, which was an invention of mine. As I paddled and ran and laughed my way through life, I collected cuts and scrapes like my sister collected A-plus grades on her schoolwork. I also used to like winding my sister up. Trying to sneak a peek at her journals was a classic. When she caught me trying, which I always made sure that she did, she would turn very red in the face and yell that she hated me. A while later, I would knock on her bedroom door and say how sorry I was and then ask her if she could help me with my homework. And the amazing thing was, she always did. As we got older and hit our teens, my sister isolated herself even more while I continued to treat life as a game. One evening, I was brought home by the police. A neighbor's window had been broken, which was a total accident. Honestly, it was. After the cops had left, my parents went ballistic with me. I remember one of the things my mom said to me was, Why can't you be more like your sister? What, sit in my room all the time brooding? I thought, but didn't risk saying it out loud. I was grounded for a week and sent up to my room with no supper, both of which were a total nightmare. Hours later, I was still pacing my room and thinking up new ways to break out, when there was a quiet tap on the door. I opened it to find my sister standing there with a slice of pizza on a napkin. She handed it over without a word and headed along to her room. I don't know if there's a world speed record for eating a cold slice of pepperoni pizza, but I reckon that I might have beaten it that night. A couple of months after this, when I was still pretty much out on parole as far as my parents were concerned, I was running for the exit at the end of another endless school day, when I saw my sister. She was standing by the lockers and a couple of older boys had her backpack. They were going through it and pulling things out and then waving them at my sister's face and laughing. One of them had my sister's latest journal. Through her tears, she was telling them to leave her alone. I saw red. I raced along the corridor, my hands clenched into fists, and I barreled into the boys who were tormenting her. The three of us rolled along the floor in a tangle of punches and kicks and shouting. I managed to elbow one of them in the gut, which left him gasping for breath, and landed a fist right into the nose of the other one. He yelped as blood began to pour out of his nostrils. Seconds later, a bunch of teachers arrived and pulled us apart. As I was marched off to the principal's office, I glanced around and saw my sister retrieving her journal from the floor where it had fallen. She looked up at me and smiled. That smile made the trouble that I got into for brawling worth it. Eventually, the time came for me to leave school. I got a job in a local auto repair shop which was good for a while, but as another summer drifted into fall, I started to get more and more restless. 
There was nothing for me in my hometown and I made the decision that I wanted out. And my route was clear. I joined the army. One beautiful spring morning I was packing my bag and getting ready to head off to catch the bus that would take me to basic training. Before I left though, my mom had insisted that I eat a proper breakfast. As I took my seat at the table, I could tell that my mom had been crying, but was doing her best to act as if everything was fine. My dad was subdued. There was no sign of my sister. She had been accepted onto a degree in archaeology and would be studying at a university close enough for her to stay living at home. I understood well enough to know why she wouldn't want to move away. All that socializing with new people would have been too much for her. But that was no excuse for her to miss my farewell breakfast. After I cleared my plate, I told my parents that I was going up to my sister's room to tell her that she could at least wave goodbye. My dad stopped me. He put a hand on my shoulder and explained that my sister did not want me to go. That she would miss me and was worried about me. That threw me. She hadn't said anything to me which wasn't really that surprising considering that we hardly ever spoke. But still. My dad put a smile on his face and told me that she'd come around eventually and would give me a warm welcome when I came back home for my first leave. He was sure of it. And then he pointed out that I would be late for the bus if I didn't get a move on. I grabbed my bag, shook his hand, and gave my mom a kiss on the cheek. And that was me. I was out the door, on my way to a new and exciting life. When that began in a swirl of early morning starts, runs, drills, salutes, rules to learn, boots to clean, and then falling into bed before starting all over again after never enough sleep. I had bags under my eyes and blisters on my feet and I was in my element. After basic training came the graduation ceremony. My parents attended. My sister stayed home, which I had been expecting but still felt a flare of disappointment about. And then I was posted to a base in the Midwest to start the next phase of my life in the army. I had been primed for action and adrenaline and being pushed to my limits. What I got was routine and drills. Boredom set in. I tried to test myself. I used my periods of leave to go free climbing and free diving rather than going home to visit my parents. I could tell they were disappointed about this when I spoke to them, but being back in my hometown was the last thing that I wanted to do. I also tried speaking to my sister a few times and sent her a bunch of messages, but she kept on blanking me. Back on base, my frustration grew. I had to do something. In the end, I went all or nothing and I applied for the special forces. I entered the selection process, a driven man. Failure was not an option. The next few years made everything that I had done in my life up until that point seem like a cakewalk. It was extreme and it was exhilarating. And I made it. I was on a total high until it all came crashing down. The night before my first overseas mission, I was called into the CO's office and told that my parents had been killed in an automobile accident. 
The CO told me how sorry it was and informed me that I could take compassionate leave. Looking back, I find it hard to explain my actions here. I was torn apart by the news. I loved my mom and dad dearly. But I was also due to fly out and do what I had trained so hard for. I was still young and naive enough to believe that combat was going to be amazing. And a part of me thought that if I left the base that night, I might never get the chance to prove myself in the field of conflict. My mind was racing and I made a quick decision. I told the CO that I wanted to go on the mission. Me going home wouldn't bring my parents back, so I would stay with my comrades. I would do my duty. Although I was not allowed to reveal any details about where I was and what I was doing, I was given permission to contact my sister and tell her what I had decided. I tried, but her phone rang out, as did the phone at our parents' home. I messaged her a bunch in different ways, told her that I would see her as soon as I could. Looking back, I feel very ashamed of what I did, but at the time, I was solely focused on the mission ahead. My heart was beating fast as I walked towards the plane on the runway, which would be taking us to our destination. We would parachute out over a jungle region at midnight local time and undertake disruptive activity behind enemy lines. We were out there for six weeks. I lost two close friends on the deployment and I returned to base feeling dog-tired and confused. It was too much to process, so I buried it inside instead and went home to see my sister Waiting at the airport for the civilian flight home, I searched on news websites local to my hometown and found one small article about the accident. My parents had been driving home from a movie theater when they had been hit by another vehicle that had earlier been reported stolen. The police were still trying to trace the driver of that vehicle, who had fled the scene on foot. I boarded the plane in a daze. I was pulsing with anger and weighed down by sadness at the same time. When I finally walked up to the front door of the home that I had grown up in, I felt at breaking point. All I wanted to do was hug my sister and tell her that I loved her. I no longer had a key and so I knocked. I could see movement inside and I caught a glance at my sister, but she was moving away from the door. I didn't understand why. I knocked again and yelled out that it was me. A few moments later, I received a message on my phone. It said that I had broken her heart by not coming home for the funeral, and that she never wanted to see me again. I threw my phone to the ground. This couldn't be happening. I hammered on the door, pleaded with her to let me in. I begged her. If we could only talk and sort things out... It would be okay. I mean, surely it would be okay. After a while, I was dimly aware of a siren. It was coming closer. Turned out I was causing such a disturbance that one of the neighbors had called the cops. I knew one of the officers who arrived. We had been in the same year at school. He told me that it was really sorry about my parents, but it was best that I left. I was devastated. 
I wanted to argue, I wanted to go over and tell the neighbor exactly what I thought of them. But if I had been arrested and charged my military career, it could have been over. And at that moment in time, I didn't seem to have anything else left. I had lost my parents and my sister, it seemed. I apologized to the two officers and I headed back to the airport. That was the last time that I was ever in my hometown. After a lost weekend spent locked in a motel room drinking, I returned to my unit. More missions followed over the next five years. They are not in any official records. The bottom line is that these were conflicts where my country was getting its hands dirty, but didn't want the rest of the world to know. As for me, I became collateral damage. There wasn't a defining moment where I broke down and couldn't continue. It was a gradual collapse. I drank in secret, I took pills. My nerves were on a knife edge and sleep became a fractured nightmare infested thing. I would wake up with a yell and lie there coated in sweat. I knew there would be no point trying to get back to sleep. Now when so many painful memories from the missions were there, ready to twist into another hideous dream. Finally, I accepted that I could not go on, and I opened up about my substance abuse to an army doctor. After a bunch more paperwork, boy does the army like paperwork, I was discharged. Being a civilian again though did not feel good. I still woke up from hideous dreams every night, and I was constantly on edge, looking around for threats that were not there. I also tried reaching out to my sister again, but none of the contacts that I had for her worked. I searched for her online and following the digital thread, found out that she had graduated and was now a faculty member of the archaeological department of a university. I felt a swell of pride about this. My little sister, she had done good. I tried sending messages to her via the general contact details shown on the university website. I wanted her to know that I thought she was amazing and wanted to say sorry one more time. I never heard back from any of the messages. I didn't blame her, I didn't blame anyone, apart from myself. I was feeling lower and lower by this point and I started to draft. I hitched rides and slept rough. I avoided people where I could. It was like I was on the run. There's a saying about no matter how far you travel, you can never get away from yourself. I was the poster boy for that saying at that point in my life. And after six months or so, I found myself in a rural area in the far north. The solitude that I was able to find there felt good, and so I stayed on. I found a derelict cabin and started to do it up. The nearest town was hours away. I was living off the land to an extent. Once a month, I drove into town and stayed just long enough to stock up. I also cashed my army pension at the post office there. Living like this, I found a kind of peace. I liked the way the periods of light and darkness stretched and constricted through these seasons to create extremes. I enjoyed the long days and the nights that held a grip. I loved the silence that was broken only by the wind and the cries of the animals. I could have stayed there forever. 
But then the policeman knocked on the door and turned my new life upside down. I tensed at the sound of the knock. Nobody had been out to my property all the time that I had lived there, and I wasn't expecting anyone. I went to the window to check who was out there and saw the cap held in his hand, the bulky jacket over his uniform and the car parked up. There was no reason I shouldn't open my door and wish the officer a civil good morning. So I did. He asked me if I was Jordan Anderson. I answered that I was. And then he looked down at his boots for a moment, and that sent a ripple of unease loose inside of me. I asked him if something was wrong, and he told me in a solemn voice, It's your sister. She's been reported missing. I told him that he better come in. I offered him coffee, but he said no. So I asked him just to get to it, to tell me what he knew. He looked me in the eye and said, your sister's personal file is you down as next of kin and gives your contact details as the army. When her employer contacted the army, they passed the message on to the post office in town. The post office called me. You being such a hard man to contact, the message was already five days old, and I didn't want to delay things any further, so I drove straight out here. The message said that your sister was working with a group of university students on an archaeological dig at an old mining settlement in a remote area of northern Alaska. They were off-grid as far as mobiles and the net was concerned, but had been in regular contact with the university via satellite phone. Then they fell silent. After a week, there was sufficient concern for their welfare that a local search and rescue team was sent to the settlement, but no one was found there. The authorities are examining the evidence, but as yet, there's no explanation. Maybe there was some kind of accident. It's a dangerous environment up there. His voice trailed off, and I could tell that he didn't want to say out loud what we were both thinking. That my sister was missing, presumed dead. He didn't seem to have anything else to say, so I thanked him and told him that I had work to be getting on with. He told me that he was sorry and that if he received any further word, he'd be sure to let me know. I stood in the front room and listened to the sound of his car driving away, until there was only the silence once more and I was alone with my thoughts. A lot of questions were bubbling up inside all of me at once. Why did she put me down as her next of kin? Did it mean that she wanted me to be a part of her life after all? And did that matter anyway if she was gone? As this last question rose and fell away inside me, I put my head in my hands, and I made a decision. I couldn't. I wouldn't accept that my sister was dead, so I would go to northern Alaska and look for her. With a sense of urgency pulsing through me, I loaded up my truck. The last thing that I got was my mobile phone. I hadn't used it for a long time because I had no signal where I lived, but I figured I needed it then. I turned it on and put it in the passenger seat and then set off. I drove towards town, glancing at regular intervals at the mobile. I was a mile out from the center of town when the bars appeared. 
I pulled over, opened up the browser, and typed in the name of the university where she worked. Moments later, I was on its homepage. After following a bunch of links, I ended up in the news section. There was a bland, self-promotional story announcing the archaeological dig that my sister was a part of. In the circumstances, it should have been removed, but I guess, like most big organizations, the university's left hand wasn't talking to its right hand and the story was still there. It was dated three months before and detailed how a team from the university's archaeological department would be surveying a long-abandoned mining settlement of historical interest. I had always thought that archaeologists only ever dug up sites that were thousands of years old. But according to the website, this project was focused on a settlement that had sprung up around 70 years ago. The site was said to have been left undisturbed and could help add important details to the understanding of an industry which had played such a key role in the region. All of which would have been just dandy had the people carrying out the work there not seemingly vanished from the face of the earth. These supplementary information at the end of the story included a map. It wasn't detailed enough to lead me to the old mining settlement directly, but did show a town that was relatively nearby. That I knew was where I needed to head first. Next, I checked out flights as that should have been the quickest way to get to the area that proved to not be the case. I would need to wait three days into the next scheduled flight to the nearest regional airport, and then either charter a small plane or hire a car. Waiting for anything was out of the question with the mood that I was in. I decided that I would get there under my own steam and my own vehicle. I restarted the engine, turned away from town, and floored the accelerator. I drove non-stop for hour after hour. I knew that I should have stopped and rested up, but I was possessed. Nothing else mattered now but for me to get there and find my sister. When night fell, I felt as though I was moving through an endless darkness. There was no horizon, just the strip of road ahead of me caught in the headlights. Now and then I caught glimpses of lights in the far distance. The bright clusters of industrial plants shining like constellations on the edge of sight. Hours would pass without me seeing a single other vehicle. Just before dawn, I was looking at the road but not really seeing anything. I was feeling hazy and thinking about my sister and our parents, our home, when an 18-wheeler suddenly appeared. It towered over me, its horn was screaming and its lights were blinding me. It was about to hit me. There was no time to brake. I pulled the steering wheel to the right as hard as I could and I felt the force of the other vehicle pass by me like a storm. My truck shook and rattled as it careened off the tarmac onto dirt and rock. I braked and veered to a halt and then sat there breathing raggedly, blinking, wondering how I had not seen it coming. I figured that I must have been falling asleep at the wheel and drifting into the other lane. If we had collided, I would have been crushed. I wiped cold sweat from my brow and drove a little further away from the road, then turned the engine off and closed my eyes. I could not help my sister if I was dead. I needed to sleep.
I woke with a start a few hours later. A fragment of a nightmare remained in my mind's eye for a moment. I was parachuting into hostile territory, and the ground was opening up below me. The crevice was lined with sharp teeth. I rubbed my face. It was another foul dream and I needed to forget about it. I made coffee into flavorless powdered stew on the small camper stove that I brought with me. Topped this off with a couple of energy bars and then got going again. As the miles continued to pass, I lost track of time. There was only the road ahead. When finally, I saw a sign with the name of the town that I was looking for. A tired smile that crossed my face. I was one step closer to finding my sister. It was dusk. The road grew narrower as I approached the town. There were no streetlights alongside the road, but I could see the glow of lights and buildings ahead as night fell. Shadows reached out from squat wooden structures that lined what seemed to be the town's main street. Its only street, perhaps. I could just make out the goods in the window of a convenience store. It looked as if it was already closed for the night. On the other side of the road, the lights were going out in another store. A silhouette inside pulled down a shutter over the door. Next door, there was a light on in a building announcing itself as a mortician's. Death must be a 24-hour business around here, I thought with a wiry grin, and drove on slowly down the street. Towards the end of the strip on the left, there was one building which looked very much open. Light bled from its windows into the street and as I parked up and killed the engine, I could hear music as well as the sound of raised voices drifting out. I climbed from my truck, stretched my aching limbs and looked at the sign daubed on the window in white paint. It read, Jed's Bar. Underneath was scrawled, Rest your weary bones and take a drink. At that moment in time that sounded mighty good to me so I headed on inside. The air was thick with the smell of alcohol and tobacco. I was pretty ripe after long days on the road, but as I stood just inside the doorway, there was no mistaking the stench of stale sweat that also filled the place. I looked around. There were a row of round wooden tables with chairs pulled up around them, a jukebox playing a song about being lonesome in the night, and a long bar area running the length of one wall. The patrons of the bar were gathered there, hunched over glasses and looking my way. A dozen pairs of bloodshot eyes and all. I guess that they must not have gotten many strangers calling in for a drink at Jed's bar, but I didn't feel intimidated by the intention. I nodded and said, I hope you're all well this fine evening, and then I headed for the bar. There were no women patronizing the bar that particular night, and I doubted the men there had loving better halves waiting at home. Their clothes looked what I would have called lived in. The stubble on their chins was gray and their cheeks were explosions of broken veins. The man standing behind the bar who was watching me as well as I approached was equally disheveled. He was wiping the inside of a tankard with a filthy cloth. I made a mental note to take my drink directly from a bottle, 
and settled into an empty seat. I ordered a beer. There was a handwritten sign on a chalkboard behind the bar saying, No credit cards, no tabs. I placed a note on the bar and then turned to my neighbor and smiled and told him that I was looking for the old mining settlement and would be mighty grateful if he or one of the other gentlemen in the bar could give me directions. Well, once I had said my piece, it was as if somebody had flicked a switch. The atmosphere in the bar went from wary suspicion of a stranger to downright cold. I had no idea what I had done wrong and I turned to the barman. He was scowling at me and pretty much slammed the open bottle of beer down onto the bar in front of me, then said in a hoarse and slurred voice, Dang, mister, you don't want to go to that place. There's a badness out there waiting in the darkness. It drove the miners to abandon the settlement and it hasn't lost its appetite since. We told the other strangers that. We told them to stay away but they would not listen. He shook his head and went back to wiping a glass with a filthy cloth. None of the men at the bar were looking at me now. It felt like they were averting their gaze. They wanted nothing to do with me. In a quiet voice I said, My little sister was one of those strangers and I'm here to find her and bring her home if I can. If one of you want to help me do that, I'll be grateful. If not, I'll wish you a good night and be on my way. I caught glances between the barman and the men at the bar. I figured they were trying to decide what to do. After a few long minutes, the barman went into a back room and returned, carrying a map. It was old and faded and torn to pieces. He opened it up and put it on the bar, and then he placed a nicotine-stained finger on a point on the map. He said nothing. None of them did, and they didn't need to. I looked to where the old mining settlement was located, and thanks to my years of army training, I memorized the map. And then I nodded at the barman and laughed. The doors closed behind me. I stood and breathed in the night air. It was cold and clear. I started up the engine and set off in the direction the map had shown. I had my headlights on full beam. They picked out a dirt track with trees starting to rise around it. I trusted my sense of direction and the guidance offered by these stars and I knew that I could reach my destination. I hadn't been driving for long though when the route that I was on started to become impassable for my truck. I tried forcing my way through a little further, but the sounds of the scraping and cracking coming from below the truck made me stop. Damaging the truck beyond repair was something that I needed to avoid. I reckoned it was another three hours on foot to the mining settlement. That would have been a breeze back in my special forces days. But I was nowhere near that level of fitness now. But I was still in good shape and I was determined. I grabbed a backpack, filled it with enough supplies to keep me going for 24 hours, put on a headband with a flashlight attached and set off on foot. I wanted to run, but even with the flashlight cutting swaths through the darkness, the danger of snagging my foot in the undergrowth was too risky, so instead I walked as quick as I could. 
To help ensure that I could find my way back to the truck, I marked trees at regular intervals. I was light on my feet, but to the creatures living there, I must have sounded like a clumsy juggernaut. All around me, there were frequent sudden rustles of movement and animals and birds crying out. As the miles passed, I began to gasp for breath. The cold air burnt the back of my throat and I began to feel sharp pains spreading through my chest. I powered on, focusing on the next step, and then the next. Everyone I took brought me closer to finding my sister. My sense of time slipped and I couldn't say if there was three hours or longer when a break appeared ahead of me. I raced towards it and found myself in a clearing. The first light of dawn was creeping through the sky. I turned off the flashlight. In the gloom, the remains of old timber huts stood scattered around. Time and nature had broken in roofs and rotted away walls, but these were clearly still places where the miners must have lived. The huts were laid out alongside a crude grid and there was the remnants of a street sign. On one of the points, somebody had carved New York that away. As I looked around, the place felt more like the ghost of a small town than a temporary settlement. Maybe the miners had been planning on staying here. I wondered as I moved forwards, making my way past the huts. Through the openings, I could see that there were still chairs and some of the remains of tables. Looking out over the entire settlement, I could make out the shell of a larger building towards its center. Maybe it had been a meeting place for business, or a chapel, or a bar. Its ramshackle frame could have housed more than two dozen people easily, I figured. And then I came up alongside it and my nerves began to tingle. Through the gaping wound of a decayed window frame, I could see three large tents pitched inside. They were modern, high-quality kits and I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this is where my sister and the rest of the archaeological team had been staying. I walked through one of the jagged gaps in the frame of the building and over to the tents. There was no sound coming from inside the tents and no sign of movement, and I was not expecting to find anybody inside them. The search and rescue team would have presumably looked inside the tents while they were doing their sweep of the area and found nothing. But I needed to see inside the tents with my own eyes anyway. There could be a clue in there as to where the missing people had gone. I approached the nearest tent. Its front lay open and there was no external sign of damage. I looked inside cautiously in case any local wildlife had wandered in. Startling something with claws was always a bad idea. There were no animals inside though. The tent was just about tall enough to stand up inside and there was a long trestle table set up in the middle. Various objects rested on the table. There was a clay pipe that looked darkened by age. There was a small knife that still looked sharp despite the obvious signs that it had been many years since the blade had been used to cut anything. There was a single shoe and a plate with a crack running down one side. 
All in all, there were dozens of what I would describe as everyday items that must have been collected as part of the archaeological investigation of the site. At the far end of the trestle table, there was a closed laptop and a paper notebook. I opened the laptop and it flickered on. The logo of the university appeared on screen along with a box asking for a password. I turned to the notebook. In page after page of careful handwriting, it detailed objects that I recognized from the table. There were sketches alongside dimensions and notes of locations where each object had been found. It was nerdy to the ninth degree and I imagined my sister loving it. I smiled sadly to myself and went to check out the other tents. The first one was clearly where people bunkered down. It was filled with a tangle of sleeping bags and clothes, wash bags, and bug repellent. I found a couple of wallets as well with IDs in them. Both were men in their early twenties. They must have been students, I guessed, on what must have felt like the adventure of a lifetime. Until... Until what? I was still no closer to finding out. I shook my head and backed out of the tent and entered the last one. From the clothing scattered about, this looked to have been where the women slept. Now was not the time to worry about invading personal space, so I rooted through their belongings, even shaking out sleeping bags in my mounting frustration. In the last sleeping bag that I lifted up, I could feel something still inside it. I reached in and took out a slim paper notebook. A cold chill traveled over my skin. Even before I opened the notebook, I thought that I knew what it was. I turned to the first page and by the daylight streaming through the sides of the tent, I began to read in my sister's journal. The entries began as she prepared to leave for this expedition. Through the details of double-checking equipment and finalizing travel plans, her excitement shone through. She was going to lead the expedition which was a first for her and clearly a proud achievement. At one point, she wrote, I wish so much that I could pick up the phone and call mom and dad and tell them all about this. There was no mention of me. The journal went on to record the journey to northern Alaska, the long hike to get to the settlement carrying their gear and then setting up the camp, and the buzz of the early excavation work. I read this through a blur of tears. I hadn't cried since I was a child. Despite all the pain of my military service and its aftermath, I had kept the tears inside. Sitting in that tent with my sister's journal open on my knee, there was no holding back. The journal ended with an entry about settling down to a good night's sleep. There was nothing about any threat or concerns for her safety or for the students with her. I closed the journal. I felt drained. Without really thinking about what I was doing, I pulled the sleeping bag over me and lay down. Something growled close by. I opened my eyes. My heart was beating fast and it was dark inside the tent. Night had fallen. I breathed out. I must have slept for hours and the growl was a part of another nightmare. I told myself that it was fine. 
But then I heard another growl. I froze. The sound had come from right outside of the tent. I looked over at the entrance. I hadn't closed it, so whatever was out there had the red carpet pretty much laid out for it to walk on in if you wanted. My mind began to race through possibilities. It hadn't sounded like a bear. Maybe it was a wolf. And one that was hungry enough to come hunting for a human. The growl outside sounded again, a low and harsh rumble, like a storm building before it breaks. I was armed, not because I had come to this place expecting violence, but because it was practical to carry in a landscape such as this. I unclipped the holster and drew nice and slow. I wanted to give whatever was out there the shock of its life. I aimed at the open entrance and fired, and then listened. Apart from my ragged breathing, there was silence. I sat up and then crawled out of the tent. I was relieved to see that there was no wild animal in sight, not only because it meant that I had succeeded in scaring it off, but also because I had not wanted to harm a creature acting naturally in its own home territory. I was the intruder here after all, and as long as I didn't end up as dinner, I figured the two of us could get along at a distance real fine. I did not reholster in case the animal decided to try again and collected twigs one-handed to make a fire. Now the initial danger had passed and I was starting to feel the bitter cold of the night. Once the flames were crackling, I sat as close to them as I could without getting singed. I still fell down after reading my sister's journal, but I was more determined than ever to find her. One wolf, it had been a wolf. It would have not been enough to take and kill a group of adults, which meant that there was still a mystery here. And where there was a mystery, there was hope. I decided that in the morning, I would begin to methodically survey the surrounding area of the settlement. I would work my way outwards, looking for signs of broken foliage or tracks, from people or otherwise that could give me a lead. In the meantime, the best that I could do was remain vigilant in case my wild neighbor returned, and brew up some coffee. Twenty minutes or so later, I was sipping my second cup of coffee when I heard a rustle nearby. I put the cup down gently and quietly as I could and I focused in on the sound. It had come from almost straight ahead of me. And there it was again, the sound of something moving close by but out of sight. I pointed the flashlight and through the gaps in the frame of the building saw the dark shapes of huts and something darker still padding between them. I got to my feet and slipped the safety catch off. My heart was a jackhammer inside me as I stared out and saw a pair of eyes. They were red and so vivid and bright it was as if they were two scarlet flames in the night. And then I saw the tips of fangs and a snout as a monster began to move towards me. It was a wolf but made grotesquely large. Its pelt was gray and matted. Its stride was slow and deliberate. My guts, as much as my eyes, told me this was an intelligent creature and a vicious one. 
Lines of drool hung from its fangs as its jaw opened a little. A low growl drifted towards me, and I could see it tensing and getting ready to leap. I did not move. Hold it, I told myself. Hold it. And then the creature exploded forwards. Its claws were extended, its jaws wide open. I raised my weapon and fired. The creature threw its head up and toweled and then fell to the ground. It writhed around, thrashing in a frenzy of pain. I could see blood rushing from inside its mouth where I had wounded it. I felt no sense of triumph or relief because the mystery of my sister's disappearance had been explained. A creature of this size could have taken her and the students. Years ago, one of this thing's ancestors could have also killed some of the miners in the settlement and scared the rest of them away. Scholars and miners would have been no match for it. But X Special Forces was a different ball game altogether. I kept the barrel pointed at the creature. I felt nauseous as I looked at the thing's fangs and wondered if they had been the last thing my sister had seen. My finger twitched. I was going to make sure that it never killed again. Only suddenly, it turned its head to face me. Its eyes burnt into me. It got to its feet, it snarled, and it threw itself at me. I ducked and rolled away. A line of pain shot along my arm. Gasping now sprawled out on the ground, I looked at my arm. A wide gash ran the length of my forearm, where the creature must have caught me with its claws. And now it was behind me, snarling, ready to attack once more. I took a deep breath. Thankfully, I held the weapon on my uninjured side. I threw myself onto my back, extended my arm, and aimed for the creature's eye. A second later, a primal scream cut through the night. My aim had been true. I had still not put the creature down for good though. It reared away and began to run back through the settlement. I followed as it sped past the huts and then into the undergrowth beyond. It was time to finish it, to end its filthy life. My flashlight revealed a trail of blood in the creature's wake. It was crashing onward, but there would be no escape. I raced on until I saw ahead of me the creature slow down and then collapse. I slowed as well and circled it. It was lying on the ground, breathing heavily. As I came closer, it looked up at me with its remaining eye. The fire there was dimming. And then the eye closed. It was over. I began to turn away, and then I saw something just past where the creature lay that stopped me in my tracks. I moved towards the thing that I had seen, desperately hoping that I was mistaken, but there was no mistake. A human skull glinted pale and terrible in the beam of my flashlight, and just beyond it there was a second skull. Lying at an angle to this was a spine and a ribcage. I took another few steps forward and everywhere that I looked, I could see more skeletal remains. Some looked very old, others seemed more recent. 
I noticed a sliver of flesh still attached to one femur. I had seen things that no person should have to see in the theater of war, but this was more than I could take, because I knew these were the victims of the creature and that my sister would be among them. I fell to my knees and wept. I had failed her and I wanted to lay down among the dead and never move. I knelt there, racked with guilt and sorrow through the rest of that longest night. At dawn, I forced myself to my feet. The least I could do was give these people as decent as a burial as they could. But where to begin? I was trying to decide when my world was turned upside down once again. In the morning light, something had moved just beyond where the bones lay. I looked closer and I saw a hand. The fingers were twitching, and I could see a tangle of hair as well. By all the, it was incredible that there was still somebody alive. I scrambled forwards and my heart lapped. It was my sister. She was covered in dirt and dried blood and barely conscious. I checked her pulse and it was weak but steady. Hold on there. I said to her, I'm going to get you out of here. I don't know if she heard me, but that didn't matter at that moment. All that did was that somehow she had survived and I needed to get her to a place of safety. I lifted her up as gently as I could and set off walking. We passed the creature's body. Rot in Hades. I thought as I looked away from it for the last time. I carried her through the old settlement and on. The relief of finding her gave me the strength to move swiftly and surely. My markings were clear and easy to follow. Every now and then I would speak to her. I said things like, I remember that time the police brought me home. Boy, were mom and dad mad. She didn't respond to anything I said, but I kept talking to her. Kept holding her tight as we neared the truck and finally reached it. I placed her carefully in the passenger seat and then went round to the driver's side and got behind the wheel. I turned the key. The engine did not start. I tapped the dashboard and asked the truck to be kind to me and then tried again, but still nothing. A third time lucky, I thought. But then I heard a growl. I looked up and fear gripped me. The creature was six feet away from the truck. It raised its head slowly and bared its hideous teeth. They were stained dark with its own dried blood. More crimson stains marked its gray pelt below its destroyed eye, as if it had been weeping blood. How was it still alive? I didn't know. This thing that was an aberration in the natural world. It growled again. I tore my gaze away from it. We needed to get away from there. It had been a long time since I had asked a higher power for help, but I did then. I turned the key and finally the engine kicked into life. As it did, the creature left. The truck lurched forwards and the creature crashed into the windscreen, which cracked and then gave way. Suddenly, there were claws inside the truck, inches away from my face, trying to slash at me. 
and a muzzle and blood-stained fangs slick with drool. I threw myself to the side onto my sister covering her and trying to protect her. When I did, the creature pulled back for a moment. It was gearing up for a new attack, I figured, which gave me a few seconds to act. I reached out with one hand and I grabbed the wheel, twisted my leg so that I could press down onto the pedal, and I went for it. I floored the pedal and the car rushed forwards. The creature was still on the front hood, a dark, crazed mass blocking my vision. No hangers on, I muttered under my breath and slammed on the brake. The creature toppled backwards onto the ground. I raced forwards again, using the truck like a weapon now. Sickening sounds filled the vehicle as it hit the creature. I tried to reverse away so that I could attack it again, but the truck was wrecked and juddered to a halt. I reached over my sister and opened the door and maneuvered us both out. I laid her very gently on the ground and then looked over at the creature. From the angle of its head, I knew that it would not be coming back from this. It was finally dead. Game over. I knelt by my sister and wept. I didn't notice her raise her hand until her fingers had brushed my cheek. I looked down at her face. Her eyes were open. Hey, I said. Hey. Her reply was hoarse and she began to cough. It's okay, I said. That thing's dead and you're safe now. I'm gonna get you to town and then we can get the help you need. She grimaced as a spasm of pain had passed through her. And then she said, No, you have to keep me away from the other people. I don't understand, I told her. She looked at me and said, It wanted me to be its bride. It changed me with a bite and now I'm not human anymore. Her gaze drifted to the body of the creature. I looked over as well and felt a jolt of shock pass through me. It was no longer the corpse of a monstrous creature lying on the ground. It was the corpse of a man. My sister's fingers once again touched my face and she guided me to look at her. He was a shapeshifter, and now so am I. Our journey home was long and difficult. I carried her back to the town and then stole the car and when that ran out of petrol, I stole another. I parked in shadows when I went to buy food from roadside diners. My sister slept most of the time. I slept only when I had to. At last, we pulled up outside my cabin. I helped her out of the car and supported her inside. Two days later, she changed before my eyes for the first time. She became the creature for a few hours and then turned back into a person. That was six months ago, and she has changed again many times. The change emerges without warning. The young, shy, bright woman once more becomes the creature for hours, sometimes even days at a time. It holds back from attacking me because it recognizes me. Even so, we made the decision that while she was in her altered state, she should be kept hidden in a secure place. 
I reinforced and soundproofed a room in the cabin with steel and padlocks to be her cage. This breaks my heart, but until we find a way that she can control the darkness inside of her, what other choice is there? If anybody else encountered her, they would see a monster that had to be destroyed. I see my little sister, and I will always be there for her. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.